Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Crafted on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Napa Valley, California is a mecca of modern winemaking and is home to some of the most respected wineries and coveted wines being produced today. But not too long ago, Napa Valley was a sleepy farm community and not an epicenter of high-end wine tourism. And in our conversation today, we are talking about how Napa became Napa. And we have the perfect guest for this topic with us, Marilyn Harris. Marilyn and her husband, Ren, own Paradigm Winery in Oakville, California, and they've had a front row seat and actually played a firsthand role in the evolution of Napa Valley. So it was a real honor and a pleasure to sit down with Marilyn to learn more about this rich history. Furthermore, Paradigm Winery produces some absolutely beautiful wines, and Marilyn and I talk a bit about some of them in this conversation, and I strongly encourage you to check them out. This episode is presented by our Blister Craft Collective, which is a collection of some of our favorite craft companies and some of the very best companies across a range of craft categories that support the independent work that we do here at Blister. You can learn more about the Blister Craft Collective on our website, and we'll include a link to the Craft Collective in the show notes of this episode. So check them out because I am confident that some of these companies are going to become some of your new favorite companies too. And now let's talk about the history of Napa Valley and the creation of a wine mecca with the wonderful Marilyn Harris. Here we go. This is a real pleasure. I am here with Marilyn Harris who I actually just got to spend some time with, I think a bit less than two weeks ago, out on your stomping grounds at the Paradigm Winery and at your home with you and your husband and Marianne. And it was really a lovely time with good friends and good people and getting to see all the Paradigm operations. And now we are in Ketchum, Idaho, where I actually met you for the first time about a year ago at the Sun Valley Wine Auction. So this is a bit of our history. So this also is a conversation that I've been looking forward to basically since I met you a year ago. And so welcome. And thanks so much for the time that we had in Napa and Oakville and really just a wonderful, wonderful experience. So today... I don't know that there's many better people that we could be talking to about the history of Napa. And we're going to talk quite a bit about Paradigm Winery as well. But Marilyn, maybe we start with just having you... Let's back it up a bit and have you tell us a bit about your own family roots in the winemaking world. Uh, Thank you, Jonathan. I'd love to talk about our family roots. In fact, Paradigm started way back when my grandparents, uh, Giuseppe and Maria Palisa, 
immigrated to Calistoga in 1898 and bought a vineyard. And my father was born there and worked the, the vineyard with horse and plow. <laughs> and when we were getting into the wine and to the grape business much later, he said, I am never going to grow grapes because it's hard work and I did it when I was a child. And my parents bought at the at, in the middle of the depression a very large uh, property in the Yountville area, 1936. Uh, and they had prunes, plums, uh, walnuts, vegetables, milk cows. They had quite an operation, of a, a farm operation. And I was born in 42 and grew up on this farm, country girl, doing all the stuff we do in the country. And Yonville and the whole Napa County, Napa Valley at that time, was a very small, farm-oriented, laid-back community, which was lovely then. And But it was interesting because every farmer was kind of on his own. There was no group kind of togetherness. And in the 60s, we ran into a, a problem. Farmers were starting to sell off acre plots to for homes. Hmm. And we looked around, and in San Jose, they had gone from the uh, breadbasket of the world to homes and buildings hmm. and all that all that agriculture was gone. And so the county fathers got scared. And my father, Andrew Polisa, was on the planning commission. Uh, Ren and I had, had gotten married sometime earlier and, and lived in Yontville. And he and Ren was doing custom farming and a lot of different things with the farm community. And we decided that we needed to do something to stop what was going to happen to Napa Valley in Napa Valley. And basically, Ren got, you know, a lot of people in the county into a group, and we figured out we needed an agricultural preserve. And this had to do with uh, what they call the Williamson Act, which was a state act that the farmers would pay less taxes if they, in fact, um, belonged and and we put finally after about three or four years we got it on the ballot and the uh, voters voted yes we want an agricultural preserve the agricultural preserve law stated that farmers with 40 acres or more would get a lower tax base which would be which would be beneficial to them However, they could not sell parcels for less than 40 acres. So, and there were a lot of large agricultural lands out there. So the people said, yes, we want this because otherwise we are going to have homes yeah. and businesses up Highway 29 yeah. from Napa to Calistoga. And they were right. We would have had nothing but, you know, that. So that was step number one. Then we found out that 
the grape reports in the state were divided not into counties, but into areas. And we were considered the North Bay area, which involved Mendocino, Sonoma, Napa, might have even been Solano. And all those grape prices were kind of bulked into one report annually. And my husband said, we want Napa County, we want Sonoma County, we want Mendocino County, we want them all separate. So they did quite a, a, a bit of working with the state government because this was a state policy. And they got uh, passed a breakdown of counties will report their own rate prices. Hmm. And it made it more fair yep. because if Mendocino or, you know, it would make it more fair. Then a little, a couple of years later, Cesar Chavez was starting to uh, come to town wanting to unionize the farm workers. And my husband said he debated Caesar many times huh. during this, and we actually had a state ballot. And and Wren said that Caesar, it was fair for Caesar was doing a good job. He wanted to protect his people, mm. and we wanted to protect his people also, but we chose to go to the farmers in the valley and say, we need a farmer-funded union Hmm. foundation, whatever you want to call it, for our workers. Are you with us here? Because otherwise, a union will come to town and, and the workers will have to pay the fees They'll have to go to the meetings. They'll have to pick it. They'll have to do whatever they have to do. Um, And we got it. Mm. We went to the California Farm Bureau, who already had a health plan, and they helped us set it up. We actually used their Napa County facility for the placement of the, and we called it the Grape Grower Foundation, um, and it's it's actually uh, Ren set it up in other counties also. I don't know if they're still happening, hmm. but I know in the present day, the Cal- Grape Growers Association is now called Health Benefits, and it does in fact still it, uh, provide so much more for the for the farm workers than they had. And what it does for the farmers is there is a stability. Hmm. We have had farm workers working with hmm. us for 30 years. <laughs> yeah. And they're happy to be there. And if they chose to leave and go to another uh, farmer, as long as that farmer had health benefits, mm-hmm. they would continue their program. Hmm. Um but it has maintained, it's helped give us stability in the workforce, and the farm workers are much better taken care of. Hmm. It's really impressive. Um, and we're talking, I mean, there's the stuff specific to Paradigm that is pretty wonderful, including things like 401k programs for workers. But I think what you are painting a picture of is that across Napa, Things are pretty good 
because of the work that was done back in the 60s and 70s to help workers and make sure that there was really good wages, stability mm-hmm. for farmers, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's an ecosystem that is pretty remarkable um, and that I didn't know really anything about till I was out mm-hmm. there a few weeks mm-hmm. ago. Um, pretty remarkable. I want to go back though. You talked about maybe in the 1930s and 40s that Napa was farmland and you talked about walnuts and a number of other fruits and crops. When did grape growing for the sake of winemaking really start? Has that been going on in that area for a long time? Talk talk to us about that. Um, It hasn't been going on. It it, on a small scale, I think, you know, it has been going on for a long time. But until we passed the agricultural preserve, it was a battle. I mean, it was, it was hard on the farmers and they were not, not making much progress. As soon as that occurred, you know, the French came in, the Italians mm-hmm. came in. We had, uh, Domaine Chandon. We had, you know, all sorts of different facilities come in because they saw their land was going to be protected. I don't know the rules in the European grape land, Hmm. but I believe that they were having trouble holding on to their own property. So they chose to come where it was going to be protected. And that's when it it skyrocketed. That's when it really began. That's when Napa Valley just changed from a a farming community to kind of a wine mecca. Uh That's when all the wineries uh, came in. That's when Vintners, I mean, grape growers like us started, decided, well, I think we need to use our grapes for our own winery. (laughs) This would be nice. (laughs) And so in 91, we finally, we actually had our vineyard in 75 and we sold to other wineries. In 91, we decided, let's just start our own winery and use our own grapes. And of course, that's, you know, so valuable because we know what our grapes are. We tend them every day, and and it's it helps to. We're kind of into terror, you know. Yeah. If the grape is good, the wine is going to be better, um, and so we concentrate on the grape. Ren always says, "I'm a farmer." Yes, um, we were blessed to have Heidi Barrett, uh, a friend of ours, back then. This is ninety one, um, who had just graduated from UC Davis, and we asked her if she would be our winemaker, and she said yes, and she is our winemaker to this day, Hmm. 29 years later, Hmm. and she's she's famous. I mean, the woman is a a brilliant queen of the winemakers. She's wonderful. It's so cool, and I had so much fun hanging out with Ren and, and meeting him on this last trip. But I think sometimes people coming into this conversation who maybe have never been to Napa or or have been to Napa, man, first of all, beautiful farm country, but you come in and it, it's not lost on you that you're coming into a wine mecca, right? And so, and yet to spend some hours with Ren, this guy is a farmer first 
And the conversations always get back to farming. And yes, he loves wine. And side note, he and I had the most fun time talking about Zinfandel in particular. I'll pick that conversation up with him, you know, in a different in a different podcast, I hope. But um I think that it was a really cool thing to come into, you know, look, a fancy, quote unquote, fancy area, but then be on the ground with people growing the grapes, caring for the land. Um, it really brings things together in a way that um, it, I can see how that could get lost on consumers, mm -hmm. right? Where wine can become a status symbol, something that you're trying to do to impress somebody. And it's like, man, that is not what's happening, certainly at a place like Paradigm. And I think that's probably true of a, num a number of other operations. And it's kind of what I hear you talking about, if this history of how Napa developed and why, you know, this care, this concern for the land and the agricultural protections and preserve allowed it to become this center. With all that said, can you say a little more about why, I guess it was, the the 40 acre lots why that was so important when you said that was the thing that allowed french and italians to come in um i know you said because everything was being bought up and and uh homes were just being put on the land is it because that was short term a much more valuable proposition or what was it about the lots themselves it was basically for the preservation of agriculture because without help from the, the county tax collector, these farmers, being small farmers, were going to be farmed out of existence. Uh, and so it was important that they be protected in some way, and the Agricultural Preserve did that. Um, by the way, you, you earlier you spoke about Zinfandel, yeah. and I have to tell you a funny story. Uh, in the 80s, when Ren was getting into uh, the real estate business with our dear friend Jeannie Phillips, now Jeannie has started Screaming Eagle, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, he was getting into business in real estate, and I decided I needed to go out and do something to be the new creative me. So I started working for Clodeval Winery. This was one of the wineries that came in after the Ag Preserve passed. And Bernard Porte was a wonderful mentor to me. He showed me how to manage a winery and how to be hospitable to guests. And he was just a one, he is just a wonderful mentor for me. And the funniest thing, and I was in charge of hospitality. Hmm. That was my forte. <laughs> So we'd have these customers coming in all the time tasting. And one day, some uh, four women came in and said, Oh, we just, we always ask the question, Do you, what wine do you prefer? You know, we have yeah. Cabernet and we have Zinfandel. And they said, Oh, we love Zinfandel. And we said, Well, that's wonderful. We have a Zinfandel. So we went and got the Zinfandel and put it on the table, and started to pour the Zinfandel. And these women's eyes got so big, and they said, ah, it's not white? Uh -uh. <laughs> yeah. And we said, oh, uh. 
oh, well, let, let us send you up to Satui. I mean, you know, I mean, Sutter Home, uh-huh. the Trincheros would love to see you. That was during the era of White Zinfandel. Yeah. And I just thought that was kind of funny. <laughs> is Why that, not? Is, I have to ask. I don't, I don't know the answer. Is White Zinfandel still a thing? Oh, I think it is. Okay. Oh, I think it is. Yes. Okay. This is, I experienced the same thing when I go into certain coffee shops. If you order a macchiato in America, people, because Starbucks kind of co-opted the term macchiato and now they're these like huge, super sugary drinks, Mm. which is the opposite of what a macchiato is in Europe. And I think there's maybe a, a parallel there with Zinfandel. When you say you like Zen, that mm-hmm. it's possible at least there's a chance you might end up with a very different drink in your glass. <laughs> I don't, I don't know how that really happened. It's it's fun because the white Zinfandel craze was has gone on, and it's it's wonderful. If you, but it's never white. It's gonna be pink. It's gonna know. be pink. Yeah, but it has a, a lighter, sweeter taste than Zinfandel. And we're really proud of our Zinfandel because in the 90s and 2000s, everyone was over-oaking and uh-huh. over and over-alcoholing Zinfandel. I mean, they were blockbusters and it was impossible to like them, but that was the style that was being done. And when Ren and I started our Zinfandel, we picked it at a... a higher acid, a lower sugar, lower alcohol. Mm-hmm. And we, our, our Zinfandel is beautiful. It, do, it, you, do you see what's on the table right now? Oh, it's our Zinfandel. It's your Zinfandel. So thank you for that. <laughs> well, I'm, we haven't had any of that. When, when I got here last night, because it was very, our dear friends, Matthew and Jamie, this bottle was awaiting last night because they know I mean, I would say it's fair to say that Paradigm is still best known for your cabs, correct? And they're beautiful, but I'm just, I, and I love the cabs. Um, but because Matthew was present for my very extensive conversation about Zinfandels with Ren, <laughs> this is the bottle that uh, that he had out. Well, and, that's uh, nice. Yeah. Nice of Matthew. Thank yeah. you, So, Matthew. we had a great, great time with that last night. There's a little left in the bottle. So, you know, if this conversation becomes unbearable, we could <laughs> we can finish that. No, no. <laughs> um, can we talk a little bit about that? I mean, the fact that I do think, or correct me if you disagree, I was about to say, it seems like Napa has become almost synonymous with Cabernet Sauvignons. Does that feel true to you? Or are you like, no, no, people get it. There are a number of varietals that are being produced in this region and they are appreciated and understood. Where do you think we are today on that? I think we're moving away from that. I There are several wineries who are coming up with different Italian varietals. Uh, and they're they're coming out with different wines, and so I think we're we are known for wonderful Cabernet Sauvignons. Uh, but the the winemakers are still produ- still having the fun of finding the next great wine, and I think 
the the wine lovers are going along with it. And I think it will even out. Mm-hmm. So we went maybe in the kind of Napa explosion. Is it fair to say, I don't know where we want to start that <laughs> explosion, but is it fair to say that it was more singularly known for Cabernets and it is in the last several years starting to open up? Is that the right way to think? As opposed to there were excellent varietals being produced and it started narrowing into Cabernet Sauvignons. I, I would say in the last few years, people are experimenting with different varietals. Cabernet Sauvignon has been king for probably since the 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's changing because there are so many Cabernets out there that people have finally decided that they need to move on. <laughs> because, you know, you can only drink so much. And if you have your favorites, you're not going anywhere else. Uh-huh. And I think it, it, it will even out. I wanted to ask you, I don't know if you're going to like this question, but I wanted to ask you about sort of cult wines. We've seen certain brands, certain wineries get real hot, get a lot of attention, and there's a bit of a maybe rise and fall and you know, a certain brand can only stay white hot for so long kind of by definition. What do you make of this? Um having sort of seen it all perspectives on this is it strange to you is it um obvious to you that something like this would happen what's your take on cult wines for lack of a better term i say why not you know there i i feel say i feel good about cult wines i i think wines come and go and what we like is what we like and whether it's you know organic or natural or or cult, it's fine. Okay, we find our own path, and the more the merrier. At Paradigm, do you and Ren have conversations about trends or hmm, maybe we should? This seems to be hot. Maybe we should try to produce this way or get into a different varietal. Or has it been a bit more of? This is who we are. We've been doing what we do. I think about probably 20 years ago, we were talking about we have always form, farmed organically, but we never applied for all the, the organic certifications that are necessary to become certified organic. And we said, why not? Mm-hmm. Because we grow our own grapes, we make our own wine, and we could be certified organic. And so we finally did that. And for some people, that's important. And it should be important. It's all about, you know, we, we're we farmers first, and we feel that terroir is very important. And the, if the grapes are well cared for and well done, they will be wonderful. They will make wonderful wine, mm-hmm. basically. Hmm. So we're, we kind of got into the organic thing. Um, we haven't done any other magic with cult. <laughs> We've kind of got into the organic thing because it turned out we were just always doing organic. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Another question that I, I ask a number of, of uh, companies is the question of scale. And I think 
I might know the answer to this one coming in, but I still want to ask. I mean, as paradigm has grown over the years, I have to imagine had more and more opportunities to either produce more, maybe to be acquired, et cetera, et cetera. How do you think about scale and, and I guess specifically how much to produce? Maybe you're in a spot where you're like, you know, we could actually be producing more. Thoughts? Interesting. We have a 55-acre vineyard. (laughs) Yeah. And we produce grapes from a 55-acre vineyard, and we are not getting any larger. We are happy to be making maybe 4,000 cases of Cabernet Sauvignon and maybe 400 cases of Merlot and... 400 cases of Zinfandel, and a little Cabernet, maybe 200 cases of Cabernet Franc, and a a very special new little wine called Paravines, which is Cabernet Franc and... Merlot. Merlot. And can you say a bit more about the Paravine? The Paravines is is a lovely, lovely tasting wine, which... Mark Fossey is our, our in-house winemaker, and he said, you know, we have, we have Cabernet Franc that we did, ha, didn't manage to blend with our Cabernet Sauvignon this year. Why don't we just try some blending with other grapes? And so we ended up doing a pair, um, Merlot and Cabernet Franc blend, and we named and Mark named it Paravines, and I thought that was very clever of because him. it is literally a pair and, of vines. And we also make a rosé, a, yeah. a Merlot rosé, which is a different style rosé from most of the rosés that are out in the market, because it's in the uh, Vin method, which is we only use Merlot grapes. We do not have any blending of different varietals. And we pick it at a younger age, so it has more acid. Unfortunately, we're only making about 400 cases of it, and the wine club members get it all. <laughs> uh-huh. Do you, do, would there be opportunities to produce more of that rosé? You just have to re Well, we would have to. We have a special block of Merlot, which we, we, train, we work with. Separately for the rosé grape, uh, we leave more leaves on the vine so it shades the grapes. We we cut the we cut the grapes with scissors so they the real ripe grapes don't fall on the, the ground. And it's difficult to do that for much more of our merlot. And our merlot itself is very popular, so we don't want to take away from the merlot sales. Yep. Can we stay on rosé for just a second? Because, again, please correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to me, my understanding is sometimes rosé can be a little bit of an afterthought wine. It's, you know, we got to do something. Am am I on to something here? Yes, you are. Uh, There's there's another version called the Sanyi, I think it's called Sanyi type, where you bleed off a little Cabernet over here into the, and you bleed off a little Merlot into the into the rosé tank till you get a color you want. 
and it doesn't it the taste is not a pure taste it usually tastes sweet uh-huh. the rosés that are very sweet are rosés which have been have been done in this manner the vinegree manner is strictly sticking with one varietal and and it and putting it through a bladder press letting it it gain its color and then getting it off the uh, the the seeds and the skins and putting it into fermentation and the fermentation is lower than the other version and it doesn't take as long to ferment and then it goes back in a tank and it sits there for and maybe it ferments in five weeks instead of 10 weeks with the other version and we basically will bottle it after fermentation and from a harvest we will actually release it in on valentine's day and it's pink <laughs> don't you love it we love it our our fans love it huh. you know they know on valentine's day they're going to get their rosé yeah rosé of merlot so here's my very amateur take on this so again correct me if i got it wrong i think for people who what they think about when they think rosé if they really love that really sweet wine this might not be for them but for people who are like i don't find rosé to be interesting or i do find it to be too sweet that is exactly who ought to be checking this out both yeah. on the interesting like right that's the take on rosé it's not there's not a complexity there often or sometimes I, when I tried the Paradigm Rosé, I actually said to Ren, I was like, if I was blindfolded, I would have just assumed I was drinking a red because it did seem like there was the kind of complexity in the rest that just isn't always present in some of the rosés I've had. What do you think? How'd I do? I think you have the right idea. Hmm. Definitely. Look at that. We might be amateurs, but but occasionally we're not wrong. <laughs> okay, it's good. Um, what are you most excited about these days in terms of what you're seeing? I want to ask what you're most excited about and also what maybe you're most concerned or worried about just across the Napa Valley in general. Um any things you're seeing on your radar that you're particularly proud of or you are excited about? Well, I'm excited about where the industry has gone. I think I'm, and I'm very concerned about climate change because in the last, let's see, in 1972, we had 23 days of frost protection. And at the end of that, we looked like London fog in Napa Valley. Uh -huh. um, and we, in the last 10 years, we have, not, we have not had two or three frost days in the whole season, which is um, March, April. And Ren and I are very concerned about it. We may be growing bananas. And with the water problems, those are my major concerns. Yeah. It's such an amazing thing. I mean, we're seeing it in the coffee world 
in, in terms of coffee bean production and in the wine world, stuff is shifting and mm. regions that used to be excellent and perfect for growing this crop or this fruit, this stuff is shifting. And uh, <laughs> so that is, the, that is the first concern you think of for the mm -hmm. Napa region. Yes, I find it's, it's scary. Hmm. In terms of the things you like that you're seeing, I mean, it sounds like, frankly, the history, right? When we go back to the 60s and 70s, it's, I can, it's clear that you are proud of some of the protections and things that were put in place for workers and the rest. That means a lot to you. And you've said really well how that allowed Napa to become Napa. Um, what are just some of the other things, though, that those of us who don't live there might not know that's happening? Um, just in terms of the winemaking industry, is there anything you're seeing? I think I'm seeing um, maybe a concern about getting too big and getting too important. And maybe it becomes more of a Disneyland of of winemaking. That would be my only concern. Uh huh. The tourism aspect has certainly come up. Yeah, it's definitely <laughs> come up quite a bit. And we we are small enough that we have you know four tours a day, uh, no more than four people. We sit on a little table outside looking at the vineyard and we taste the wine with people and that's it <laughs> and they go away happy uh -huh. <laughs> that's the paradigm tourism strategy <laughs> yeah yeah it's a good one it's a good one mm -hmm. but some of the wineries are either feeling more pressure or it becomes a bit of a I don't know, battle for supremacy to, yeah, to, to create more and more and more of that, I guess, experience that the tourism element and you, you guys have not gone down that road. No, we haven't. Another thing that, that, that I feel sorry for the restaurants in the Valley who used to be open for lunch, but they're no lo longer open for lunch because we now have uh, kitchens in the wineries and they're cooking lunch for people and so the economy has kind of shifted away from the restaurants in the valley and that's that's sad hmm. this this by the way <laughs> made me think of when we were in the backyard of your home trying some lovely wines you brought out Pringles. <laughs> I haven't had Pringles in so long. And there was some lovely charcuterie and cheeses and the rest. But um, I was like, Marilyn, I, we're having, I'm like, Ren had brought out, I remember a 1997 Zinfandel that he was excited for us to try. And we were having this incredible wine from a winery that no longer exists with Pringles. And I was like, Marilyn, this, I was not expecting this. And I think your answer was, well, I just saw them in the store. And I was like, huh. <laughs> so, 
Yeah. I just saw them in the store, and I hadn't seen a box of Pringles myself forever. And I said, well, I have to buy a box. What did you think? They were Pringles. I, I, they very much were Pringles. <laughs> Man, talk about consistency uh, in terms of a flavor profile. They, they sure have just, um, they hit that consistency mark. You got to give them credit for that, I guess. They did. Yeah. So, sitting in the backyard of your home drinking great wine and having Pringles. That was quite a, quite a combo. <laughs> Let me ask you, anything in particular that you'd like for us to touch on? How about this? Okay. The most fun, did I tell you about the people who call me on Monday mornings because they've tasted a Cabernet Sauvignon from Paradigm? Oh. What's, what, what, what is this? This is... Whenever I, I, when Ren and I got into the business, I was in charge of the telephones and, and booking, booking um, people and getting sales reps and all that. And so I was always answering the phone and I get a call on Monday morning from a woman and she'd say, I only drink Chardonnay. Uh-huh. And I had your Cabernet Sauvignon last night at a restaurant. And I want to buy a case. I'm going to be a Cabernet drinker. These are the kind of people we love. And, and it's, a, it, we, it's so exciting for our brand. And, and, and this was it like in the 70s and 80s and 90s. Because there was an era. Back in the 60s, white grapes were what we were on our vineyard when we bought it. Huh. And... You know, there are hardly any white grapes left in uh-huh. Napa Valley. But for these people to say, you know, I used to just only drink white wines and now I love it. So we were we're excited by telephone conversations like that. <laughs> but this is but that is more in the sixties, seventies, and eighties. You're not uh-huh. getting those phone calls today. Well you've you've converted the masses No, already. we've we've gotten a couple of we went to an auction once where uh, we served the Cabernet at the at the um, at a table and and then we kind of walked around and this woman ran after us and and when we had poured her a glass she says I don't drink red wine and we said well then you don't have to drink it it's fine and we left and and she ran after us and she said I tasted it and I called my husband and I want a case <laughs> so you are out there converting converting all the white wine drinkers of the world whatever <laughs> that's great. <laughs> I want to ask you a bit more about the business of Paradigm. It's been interesting for me as an outsider to just kind of see what's happening in a lot of different craft categories and the economics around these things and the kind of new models. I kind of think these things are probably always evolving, but certainly it seems like increasingly i don't know if increasingly is the right word but but wine clubs and memberships is uh certainly very present in the wine world is that more of a recent development or have these clubs and memberships and lists have those been with us for a decade couple decades longer than that i think the wine club has been with us for maybe 20 years, but it was always on a small scale and it wasn't as pumped up. I think with the, uh, you know, with the website and the texting, I think this is 
created a whole new ball game in that in the wine club world because it's so immediate and i think people get more excited about it because it is more immediate to their needs or whatever um so i would say it, it's grown markedly mm -hmm. when you say people get excited about it are you talking about the producers on your side or are you talking about the public i think i think both the pub public and the producers i mean it seems great actually right i mean mm -hmm. you got 55 acres you're gonna you know produce some juice and so knowing that you're gonna be able to find it a home it seems like to me that seems like i would take a good amount of stress off right it's and and we are selling directly to the customer so that's the retail price, whereas if we sell to the distributor, that's a two-thirds. Yeah. And, you know, out-of-state is a little less. Um, so, yes, it's, it's, it's important to have more customers mm -hmm. on your sales sheets. So for people who've been listening to this conversation and are like, I would love to try some Paradigm wine, are new folks that aren't already club members, et cetera, are they able to find Paradigm Wine, get it? Are they out of luck? Uh, they can go on the website, the Paradigm Winery website, and call us or email us, and we will send it right out. Okay. Should they say, hey, I only like white wine, but I heard your red's pretty good? And will that like bump them to the head of the line to get it you know, shipped out extra fast? Oh, definitely. <laughs> okay. okay. We should maybe say one final word. We are here in the Wood River Valley in Ketchum, Idaho. And, and again, I mentioned I met you a year ago at the Sun Valley Wine Auction, which is a fundraiser for the incredible Sun Valley Museum of Art. And there are other scholarship programs associated with this. How did, the, how did this program, this event, get on your radar? We have very dear friends, uh, Ron and Susan Greenspan, who got us involved uh, in the beginning. And we just, we have found this particular auction to be our favorite auctions of, of the many we go to. And that's why we're here. Mm. And we will continue coming back. Mm. That's excellent. Marilyn, it's really been a pleasure. It is an honor to sit down with well, one, someone with your energy and spirit, it's just kind of infectious, but also the history you have in this place that's so important in the modern history of winemaking and that art. It's, it's a pleasure and an honor to sit down with you and, and get to have this conversation and hear more about your story and, and get your perspective on these things. So, thank well, you very thank much. thank you, Jonathan. I'm just pleased that I could be here and talk to you and... And any more we can do, <laughs> and I'll buy the Pringles. <laughs> deal, deal. All right. If you if Pringles are on the table, then uh, then we'll do this again. And uh, I certainly hope to make it back out uh, to to Paradigm. And um, Ren has promised a conversation is coming, so we have to make that happen. And uh, whether that happens remotely or back in person, I don't know. We'll negotiate. But if the Pringles are there, I think I think you've got a good chance that I'll I'll come back out and see you. 
Thank you. Well, that's it for this edition of Crafted. I want to say thanks so much to Marilyn for the conversation. And do yourselves a favor and go to paradigmwinery.com. Check out all of the Paradigm offerings. You will not be disappointed. I also want to say thanks to the strikingly handsome Justin Bob for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening. From all of us here at Blister, please take good care of yourself and everybody else, and we will talk to you again real soon.